Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm in the studio with Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Pastor Murphy, it's good to have you back in the studio and live on That's Truth. It's good to be back, uh, Nathan, and also counted a privilege to be in the homes of people today using this medium. In this episode of That's Truth, we're going to be discussing what principles should guide our decisions in Christian gray areas. And I'm glad that you have chosen to join us, whether it's on AM, FM, online, or whether it's on Facebook Live. I'm glad you've chosen to join us on That's Truth. What do we mean by a Christian gray area? Well, at the heart of the issue when it comes to this matter of gray areas, we're talking about issues that there's no explicit uh, directive in the scripture or there's no moral imperative that we find in the Bible that relates to a particular issue. Some matters are non-negotiable, some matters are non-questionable, and there should be no debate because the Bible explicitly gives directions uh, in respect to these matters. But there are several areas uh, that there's no explicit biblical teaching on the matter, and that's basically what we mean by, by gray areas. There's no, there's no moral imperative in the Bible that, uh, that uh, regulates a particular practice or belief or habit or custom or tradition. You mentioned there are some areas that are non-negotiable. What would be some examples of those? Well, t- today we are in a, a quandary where people are faced with problems that the Christian should not be faced with. For example, we, the Bible speaks explains what marriage is. We don't have to debate what marriage is. The Bible talks about um, sexuality, what is acceptable, what is contrary to God's will. We don't have to debate about um, fornication, adultery, and stuff like that. I mean, the Bible speaks we don't have to discuss sodomy uh, as a Christian. We know that those things are explicitly talked about. Uh, the matter of the home, obedience of children, etc. Uh, so um, take the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's murder, there's the, the right to property, ownership of property. So there are a lot of countless issues that the Bible gives clear directives on, and there are moral imperatives that govern those things. But um, there are other areas that there's no clear direction on matters, like, like dress, hair, the issue today of tattoos, etc., etc. I mean, you don't find any explicit teaching in the Bible in regards to these matters. There are principles, however, that help the believer to maneuver his way in the quandary that he finds himself. Now, I know there are some people that just latched onto the fact that you said the Ten Commandments are a non-negotiable thing. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a lot of Seventh-day Adventists or people who would say they worship on the Sabbath. Are you agreeing then that we should worship on the Sabbath? No. I, when I say the Ten Commandments, the, I'm talking about the, the moral aspect of the Ten Commandments. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. 
And so the moral imperative is given to the New Testament church. The only command that is not given in the New Testament in regards to the old is the Sabbath. Uh, but again, that's another matter that we can debate and we can discuss on another occasion. However, the principle of the Sabbath is there, that one day belongs to the Lord. So the Christian observes the Sabbath in principle, the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law. So I hope we have a clear distinction in that regard. Why are there gray areas? God is almighty. God knew the past and he knows the future. He knew that some of these areas would become controversial and would be gray areas. Why didn't he just spell it out in the scripture? Uh, I think that's one of the great mysteries of the Bible, really. Uh, All I can say to you is that um, God dealt with man at the level of his understanding, the level of development. Uh, And remember that Revelation is progressive. And I think that with changing cultures and changing times, clearly um, man change over time, values change over time, uh, habits change over time, traditions change over time. And, uh, and, and I don't think that it was possible, really, uh, from the changeable nature of, of human culture, that God could have p- perhaps given a rule for every exigency. What he has done instead is what the Bible does, is that he, rather than legislate on everything that we do, he has given us broad principles that uh, become an umbrella uh, terms that we can fit issues that we face in life under. And that makes it much more easier as well. And then uh, law is good, but um, to have your child obeying out of principle, out of love, as opposed to a legalistic code, I think that says a lot about the character of the person. So I think as the character of the believer developed and as the, the truth became more known as God progressively revealed more, uh, I think that um, providing principles as opposed to a legal code uh, was the way that God chose to go, and we just got to accept that His wisdom is much wiser than we are. I can only imagine the confusion that would have ensued had God laid out a verse that said, Thou shalt watch this type of television show, and thou shalt not watch this. All those generations that went before television was in existence. Correct. And then, how would you decide uh, the matter of hairstyle? I mean, think of the different cultures. You've got the, the three basic different races. Uh, we comb our hair differently. We, we, what about mustaches? What about beards? What about these kind of issues? Uh, so I, I think it is ultimately his wisdom that he has not uh, legislated every detail of our lives and has given us the freedom because morality and freedom are linked together. And I think as we develop morally, uh, we're given more freedom, and we also learn to live within the parameters of that freedom. We curtail that freedom in the interests of others as well. Why is it so important that we discuss these principles, that we define them in how to relate to these gray areas? Well, um, I think one of the main issues that we need to recognize is that we've lost the Christian consensus. We no longer have a Christian consensus in the Western world. There used to be a Christian consensus. We all knew what was basically acceptable, not acceptable. Uh, We are living in what I call a a mercurial, volatile world where things are changing so rapidly. And anytime you got change, you come into clash with the norms of society. And and consequently, you have to make adjustments, etc., etc., But we're living in a changing world. We're living in a world of changing values. And because the Christian consensus is gone, we're now into the era of what I call neo-paganism. We've got a lot of clashes. And the philosophy of the world that is built on three pillars, 
uh, evolution, humanism, and psychology has now infiltrated the church and has created a level of confusion that uh, I could not have anticipated. So Christians are in a quandary as to how to respond because uh, there's no set form of Christianity anymore. We've got this... um, collage of, of, of Christians and, and Christian movements and what people are doing in one Christian church and not doing in the other Christian church because there's no standard any longer. That has created a situation where Christians are troubled as to what is legitimate, what is not legitimate, how do I exercise my freedom, what, what, how do I curtail my freedom, and if I do curtail my freedom, what are the principles that guide me in, in curtailing my freedom? You mentioned that we've lost the Christian consensus. Why is that? Uh, is it all from outside influences, or is it something that we as Christians and as the church have allowed to happen? Well, look, uh, the the problem today is not the world. The world will always be what the world has always been, darkness. Uh, but we are given the challenge of being the salt and the light. Uh, rather than being salt and light, we have pretty much lost our saltiness and I'm not too sure uh, how well a light shines anymore. Uh, I think the church substantially has brought this upon itself. Uh, when it should have taken a stand against... T- t- let me just say, uh, t- take the matter of evolution, for example, mm-hmm. which has been very destructive, very destructive. Uh, every form of psychology, basically, today is based on evolutionary theory, that there are no absolutes, there's no God, there's no image. Um, they don't understand human anthropology in terms of how God made man a, a body, soul, and spirit. Uh, they don't understand the fall. They don't understand the implication of that. They don't even understand what really motivates man, etc. The church should have drawn a line and prevented those kind of concepts from going into the church. But here's the problem. We send off our future pastors and leaders to schools where they're indoctrinated in these uh, different forms of of philosophy and ideologies. Uh, They learn these theories in their counseling classes, sometimes even in theological classes. Then they graduate, and they bring them back into the church. So, and again... The theological seminaries that train uh, pastors and leaders, the church should have been the ones to form those institutions, but to a great extent, they were designed to train ministers. Now they've become completely secularized, but they have a section called religion, and we're still sending people, uh, especially in the Caribbean. Um, 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 I know that the Anglican church, a lot of the uh, people are trained in the UWI, which has a secular, I mean, a, a religious section, especially in Jamaica, etc., etc. Uh, I, I know of uh, priests who teach evolution, don't teach creation. Uh, when you've got that kind of confusion today, uh, you very well understand that the church has allowed these things to infiltrate, and then it trickles down from the university to the the pastor. Then he teaches to the congregation. We got chaos, and I think the church is substantially responsible for a lot of that. You're listening to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. You're listening to Pastor David Murphy. He's originally from Barbados, and he is pastoring here in Antigua for the last 15, 16 years. He is answering your questions on the topic of what principles should guide our decisions in Christian gray areas. Pastor, what are some of these guiding principles that we should follow when addressing these gray areas, or do they change based on what the gray area is? 
Well, uh, there are two main passages that I think are very, very helpful when uh, you're discussing um, the matter of questionable issues uh, where there's no um, definitive moral imperative in Scripture that, that would give specifics in this matter. Um, the Apostle Paul um, gives a lot of these principles in two major areas, and that is found in the book of Corinthians and, uh, and the book of um, Romans. I just want to um, say that this whole matter of gray areas really relates to Christian liberty. Um, because the issues that, that we're talking about are not are, are often immoral issues. Uh, they they're not really involve any 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 matter of, of morality. And we, I'm talking about um, such things as dress. I'm talking about such things as um, um, the extent of a person's cultural involvement in society. So you said they're amoral. Does that mean that it doesn't matter what I decide to do in that area? Well, when I say they're amoral, I, I'm saying there's no uh, specific moral infraction. Okay. That is mentioned in scripture in these matters. For example, uh, jewelry is, a, is another issue that comes to mind. Uh, some people have questions about pants. Some people have questions about forms of entertainment. Uh, the matter of the theater uh, hairstyles. Should a Christian uh, play sports on Sunday? Uh, I mean, you don't find these matters addressed in scripture. So, because there are somewhat immoral issues, uh, it creates confusion for the believer, but they all generally relate to the question of Christian liberty. Um, what is the extent of a believer's liberty if there's no clear moral directive in the Bible on an issue? How far should a Christian go? Uh, should he voluntarily curtail uh, what he perceives to be his rights to do, uh, what he doesn't feel guilty about doing? And this is an issue that uh, Paul... Uh, addressed both in the, the book of um, uh, Romans and in the book of Corinthians. And I'd just like to, to mention a few of those principles that Paul calls attention to when it comes to the, the, the first one that Paul says in Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, all things are lawful for me. Now Paul, and by the way, when Paul says all things are lawful, Paul is saying anything that is not a specific uh, sanction in the Bible, uh, specific about Paul feels that he has the liberty and the freedom to exercise his Christian liberty. But then the Apostle Paul adds, but all things are not expedient. Uh, so one of the, the principles that should govern uh, a believer in respect to these gray areas is a matter of the law of expediency. Uh, the word expedient, uh, the Greek carries the idea of things that cooperate together and carry together. Uh, and the whole idea is a, a, the picture of a, a traveler uh, progressing on a, a journey and uh, things are working together so that he achieves his end and his goal and his objective. So, uh, we got to ask ourselves when it comes to these gray areas, is this thing helping me to achieve my objective, my goal? And what is my goal or my objective or my end as a Christian? Basically, is it helping me to progress in my Christ-likeness? Is it helping me to influence the unbeliever for Christ? Is it, is it uh, cooperating to helping me to glorify God? So I've got to ask, is it expedient? Is it profitable in, uh, in achieving these ends that the Bible sets as our goals, glorifying God, Christ-likeness, and of course trying to convert the believer? So what, if, if there's something I'm doing 
that seems questionable or there's some debate or discussion or some disagreement about, uh, one of the principles I apply, is this an expedient thing? Is this profitable? Is it helping me in those three areas glorify God? Is it helping me to reach the unsaved person? Is it helping me become more Christ-like? If it is not, uh, clearly uh, I should think of voluntary limiting my exercise of liberty in respect to that matter or that habit or that tradition um, or, or that behavior. Um, that is one of the principles that Paul talks about. Another one that Paul discusses is in Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That's the principle of enslavement. Uh, I, as a believer, have set free, but I, I must live under the authority of Christ. I must not let anything reign over me or be an authority over me than Christ. And if something that I am doing, even though it might seem innocent or legitimate or proper, but it begins to master my life, it is no longer legitimate or, or proper or, or, or um, innocent for me. Uh, for example, take the television, take Facebook, take all of these um, gadgets that we have today. If those things are taken uh, the believer's time so that it displaces its appetite for the word or for prayer. This is no, no longer something that is innocent or legitimate or something that is proper. It is enslaving me and it is robbing me of my appetite for the word. It's, it's beginning to control my life. I should think of, of, of uh, uh, choosing to exercise my liberty to curtail the amount of time and involvement in using these particular gadgets or instruments. So it's no longer legitimate entertainment once it begins to enslave me and dominate me so that I neglect the greater things and I lose my appetite for the Word, I lose my appetite for church, I lose my appetite for Christian growth. Uh, that is another area that we need to be very concerned about. And then a third one that Paul says in Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, he says, All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. That's the principle of edification. And the word edification means to build up. Uh, Paul says that, um, Let no man seek his own good, but seek the good of his neighbor. And if I'm engaging in something, and it is proving detrimental to my neighbor or a person I want to witness to or to another Christian. It's not building them up. Uh, I should at least think of curtailing my involvement in that activity for the benefit of others. So it's not just now about my, me, myself. I'm concerned about the, the other person. Now, uh, when you say curtailing it, is it okay in that case to curtail it publicly but still be involved in it privately where it doesn't hinder my witness to my neighbor or hinder my relationship to a weaker brother? Well, this is a matter of conscience. Okay. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there are things that you can do in private that you can't do in public. I mean, uh, we make love to our wives in private. I mean, that's pretty legit, but we not do yeah. it in public. I mean, just, just being facetious. But the truth of the matter is there are some things that you would not want to do in public. For example, there are people who feel that they can play cards 
if you hear the story of cards, sometimes you feel guilty about him because the joker is supposed to be Jesus, etc. Et but that doesn't factor into a lot of people's... They just like to play patience or something like that. Now, if they're doing it in public and somebody is highly offended, how can you be a Christian and be engaged? I can see that person playing in private in his home, in his bedroom, uh, because it's no longer offensive to somebody else. So, I, But I think it's a matter of conscience. Uh, I think sometimes that um, we... Um, we rob our exercise of liberty uh, to help other people. Uh, that's legitimate. But I do feel that we can exercise our liberty in private if there's no, our, our conscience doesn't bother us. So I do think that there are things you can do in private that you wouldn't do in public. Uh, the other thing, the other principle is, is it harmful? Uh, Paul reminds us that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. And I must always weigh my actions and I must always evaluate them on the effect it have upon other people. In both Romans and Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about not causing a brother to stumble. Uh, he talks about uh, don't offend the weaker brother. Uh, he also talks about uh, don't make the other brother weak. And then he talks about uh, don't destroy your brother or call your brother to perish. It doesn't mean that he's lost. It means that uh, his sense of well-being and then it, Paul talks about you should not defile another person's conscience uh, so that you stymie his growth. So is it harmful to the other person? It's not just about me. Christian liberty is where the Christian love, uh, Christian love that sacrifices in the interests of another person. There are other principles that um, that uh, are also Pauline, but not mentioned in Romans and in Corinthians. The other one is, does it have the appearance of evil? Uh, in Thessalonians, Paul tells us that whatever we do, we have to be very careful. If it has the appearance of evil, uh, we as believers must not engage in those kind of activities. There's some things that you might feel are quite legitimate. Other people feel that they're evil. And if it has that very appearance, uh, you must be willing to curtail exercise of your liberty. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp that came in, and thank you to the individual who sent it. Why do some Christians look down on other Christians dressing and music they listen to and accuse them of being of not being godly? Go ahead and I'll follow up with the, the rest of the question. Well, let me first answer the question. Uh, there are clear principles in the Bible in regards to dress. So we got to be very careful how we dress. Uh, man is only to be naked in a society where there's no sin. But the moment man committed sin and man was fallen, man now had depraved desires and depraved intentions. So the moment man sinned, God clothed man. So clearly clothing is, from the very beginning of the fall, was designed uh, to hide man's nakedness. If you go into the Old Testament, you'll find that there's a very clear directive given as far as how people are supposed to be dressed. And and uh, if you want to know what nakedness is in the Bible, that God, um, it was an insult for a person to be naked. Uh, if your body is exposed from your, your thigh, above your thigh, your thigh is the region between uh, your knee and your crotch. That area uh, is nakedness. So when a woman dresses to be modest, uh, she must not reveal her nakedness. And modesty, by the way, is a New Testament principle in terms of how a believer should be dressed. You find that in the book of uh, Timothy. So, uh, believers had to be careful. I was just in a church in Barbados um, a Sunday ago. Uh, 
and I must tell you that the, the, the guy did a fantastic word in preaching, but I was distracted in the service, and the reason why I was distracted is these ladies had these tight pants, and they are gyrating to the music, and I mean really like it's a carnival type of thing, and the movements, I was to- my eyes were totally distracted. I'm an old man, I'm 64, but to, to see this kind of movement, uh, I'm flesh and blood, I got red, red, red blood running in my veins, and I thought that the dress was very, very carnal and very, very sensual. That is why the Bible calls for modesty in dress. So um, a church, for example, has a right to set standards for those who engage in, in the leadership of the church, whether Sunday school teachers or, or, or deacons or any other role, because God has delegated that kind of authority uh, to certain institutions like the, the, the church, the home, um, government. Uh, God instituted and delegated authority. They have a right to set rules and regulations uh, as they see fit and is expected to be obeyed. So I, I, I do have a, I do feel this legitimate to be concerned about how people dress, especially in church services. And I, 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 um, I do feel that modesty must be the standard. As far as music is concerned, music is not neutral. I don't know who, who would tell anybody that music is neutral. Um, I can play music to make you dance. I can play music to make you hum. I can play music to make you march. I can play music to make you feel as though we're going to a military campaign. Or to make me go to sleep. Or to make you go to sleep. So it's not neutral. Uh, so I, I do feel that when it comes to the church as well, we have to be very, very careful that we don't turn the church into entertainment centers, never designed to be that. It, it's amazing, by the way, that a lot of people find it difficult to... Um, uh, I don't know how we would have existed in the New Testament where we didn't have any organs, we didn't have any pianos, we didn't have any 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 uh, guitars, we didn't have any drums in the New Testament. Yet people give you the impression, unless we have these things, we can't worship God. But they they worship God more profoundly than we do today. And we have to be very careful when it comes to the whole matter of music as well, that we're not catering to the flesh, that we're elevating people's mind to have great thoughts of God, and we're not playing to the hip, or we're not playing... Uh, to their heartstrings, that we're really, really elevating God and glorifying God in terms of music. The rest of that question was, or comment was, I think some Christians spend too much time criticizing dress code and type of music, but then neglect spreading the gospel, which is the power of God onto salvation. I, I think you're probably right about that. Uh, but again, it's very difficult to spread the gospel to anybody. You go to an unsafe person, you dress inappropriately. Uh, I'm not too sure how you would uh, spread the gospel. I remember when I was um, in, in college, we were doing visitation. And I, I went to a home, I'll never forget this. And there was a Christian lady there in her yard, and she was uh, on one of these... Um, um, kind of laid-back beds that you find on the on the shores. I, I can't remember the term you use for that, but here was like she... Like a lounge chair? Yes, like a lounge chair. She was in her bikini. And I came to her door. Not to her door. I came to, to see... I, I went into the yard. I had to virtually turn back. I mean, and I'm saying to myself, this is a Christian. Hmm. What about her neighbor next door, who's probably peeping through the window, observing her body? Uh, it'd be very hard for a woman like that uh, to be able to witness to her neighbor. So we still have to be careful. But I do agree with you that we spend a lot of our time dealing with issues that are not totally significant. 
uh, and the real things that we should be doing, like witnessing and uh, mentoring, we neglect that. But let us not, in uh, in saying that we need to do witnessing and, and uh, evangelism and mentoring believers, let us also, at the same time, understand that the Bible calls for modesty and that there is such a thing as godly music and music that worship God, and there's also type of type of music that caters totally to the flesh. Make no bones about that. You're listening to That's Truth. The voice that you hear answering these questions is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy. He's the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. Pastor Murphy, we have another WhatsApp that came in from Antigua. How can you tell if you are choosing to do something or not do something based on a Christian conscience or a legalistic lifestyle? Well, one of the reasons why we... uh have trouble with dealing with uh, these gray areas is because we always use that pejorative term legalism and we create a false dichotomy between grace and law we give the impression that uh, grace involves no element of law and that law involves no element of grace that's not true even in the Old Testament when you're under the economy of law you see God's grace displayed in the dealing with his people. When you come to the New Testament, even though we are under grace, we are not without the law of Christ. Uh, you find that in Galatians chapter 6. Uh, and the law of Christ, of course, is what is called the law of love. And the law of love is living sacrificially in the interests of others rather than uh, for your own a purpose. You're putting others before. That's the law of love. That, that's, a, that's a law. That's a code that we live under. Um, when it comes to the matter of legalism, uh, for, for example, um, legalism has more to do with your attitude towards a code of conduct, a code of law that you're, you're living under. Um, if you check the New Testament, the Pharisees were legalists. Uh, and they were legalists because they were the attitude towards the law was they were doing what they were doing to enhance themselves, to get glory, to get the attention of other people. That's what we mean by legalism. It's the wrong attitude towards the law. But even under grace, uh, we are given some very clear biblical principles. I enunciated about four or five of them a moment ago that are supposed to govern our exercise of liberty. So we we gotta, uh, we gotta we must not consider ourselves legalists because we expect believers to live to a certain standard. There must always be standards. You've got standards in school, you've got standards at the job place, and churches should have standards. And God has delegated to the home, He's delegated to government, and He's delegated to the church uh, the, the right to implement certain rules and, 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 and guidelines. And unless those rules and guidelines contradict God's Word, we expect them to be followed. Every home is different. But God has delegated to the, to the parents the right to institute rules and regulations, and the children are expected to obey that, unless that rule or that regulation violates some biblical principle. Well, that's another story. So I, I want to say, that let's get rid of this false dichotomy of being legalistic because we are concerned about standards, and emphasize the whole matter of grace. And the Bible says that we have liberty, but don't use our liberty to destroy our brother or use our liberty to, to do wickedness or malice uh, or for any selfish purpose. So there must be a balance there in that regard. Well, you've got a lot of interaction tonight, Pastor. A question that came in via WhatsApp from All Saints Antigua. What is your opinion on going to the cinema or movies as a Christian? 
Well, let me say this. For me, it is wrong. The reason why it is wrong for me, because my conscience would not allow me to do it. Uh, when I first came to Antigua, um, I, I almost put my son out of the house because he was going to the movies and I discovered it. Uh, part of the reason for that is um, my background is that the movies is worldly. Uh, theater is worldly and that uh, this is not something Christians should do. My conscience still feels that way. So it is wrong for me. But after being in Antigua and recognizing that that was not necessarily the position that the Antiguan public held, and I saw this, my, my son was going with other uh, Christians who had gone to something called IBYC. Uh, I began to realize that there were other Christians who were doing it. Um, I had to revamp my view on that matter, and um, I, I gave them the freedom to make that kind of a choice. Uh, but I still myself would not go because I am still not settled in my own conscience. Look, uh, the Bible says God is greater than your conscience. If your conscience condemn you, uh, what do you expect God will? And whatever you don't do in faith is sin. So for me, um, it would be an offense for me because I still have reservations as to whether or not it will ruin my testimony. I am not too sure if you met me at the movies as a pastor and then you came to church next Sunday morning and I am preaching about worldliness. I am not too sure you would pay too much attention. Okay, So because I feel that way at this juncture, um, I, for me, quite frankly, is something I would stay away from. But I do not, I'm not of the opinion that everybody views it that way. But if it is not offensive and you feel it's not going to impact your testimony, I think you should exercise your Christian liberty in that regard. So are you saying that it's okay to allow societal norms to determine our choices in the Christian life? Well, I'm not too sure if it's societal norms in, in this case. I mean, you're living in a society, you're living in a culture, the things that are being done. Uh, um, it's a matter of... Again, Paul says, all things are lawful for me. As a Christian, if there's no biblical imperative, a moral imperative that said that this is wrong. So you're not giving a blank slate of, okay, for all movies. You still have to filter the of content. Course, of course, of course. Uh, and that's the reason, part of the reason why it was a problem for me is because uh, the vulgarity of the movies and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I'm not sure people differentiate between a good movie and a bad movie. That was part of my problem. Um, what if I went to see a good movie and there's curse words in it? What if, uh, you know, those kind of things bother me personally. And I got to live by my conscience. Mm -hmm. uh, but we must, and again, here's my point. I'm a pastor. I'm not going to do it. But I will not condemn people who feel that they can exercise this liberty and this freedom, provided it doesn't affect their testimony and their influence in reaching the save, or in their judgment, it in no way diminishes them glorifying God. If they are totally convinced that is true, they have a right to exercise their conscience. Okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Right you said ahead. that you wouldn't condemn another believer uh, because it wasn't clearly stated in Scripture. I have never seen a verse that says, Thou shalt not smoke. Uh -huh. So would you then say that smoking is in the category of Christian liberty and something that I can do uh, even in the privacy of my own home so I don't offend others and I don't become a stumbling block? Well, let me let me take um, smoking for just a minute. Um, what we know about smoking today, clearly, it's destructive to the body. Uh, 
The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, if any man destroy God's temple, God will destroy him. Hmm. So clearly there's a principle involved here. It's not an issue today as to what are the negative effects of, of smoking. As a matter of fact, every cigarette box you have, it says very, very clearly, this is bad for you. This is bad for your health. Yeah. Uh, I think that will come into play in terms of how I will deal with a person on that, that level, something completely different. The other thing is this, even if I felt a believer had the right to, to exercise his liberty in those matters, from a church perspective, I, God has delegated to the church, to the home, to the government, the right to rule. And the church has a right to set standards. I can impose, I can, I, I could, I could impose rules and regulations that none of our Sunday school teachers smoke or drink. That's been given to the delegated to the church. The, the government can certain rules and regulations, and that's not legalistic. No, that's not that's not legalistic. How is it legalistic? Because this is delegated authority. Okay, right? and unless that institution institutes a regulation that is contrary to the will of God, then you have a right. To uh, disobey. This is why, uh, by the way, uh, let me just say this because I'm a pastor. Um, this is where I have problem with members in churches who um, I feel that if God has called a pastor or leader for a church and he is leading in a certain direction, unless what the direction he's leading is contrary to God's will, I think the church uh, should follow suit in his leadership. I feel very strongly about that. Uh, the reason for that is that has been delegated authority. But if he goes contrary to Scripture now, I think he ought to be held in check and ought to be rebuked, etc., etc. Same thing with the home. I think every home has a right to set their own rules. A mom ought to be able to tell a child, you'll be in by 11 o'clock or you can't go over by Johnny's home, whatever it is. The child under God has has to obey the parent in that because it doesn't violate any clear principle in the scripture. That is delegated authority. I think that's how we need to view life in regards to a lot of issues. Um, you might feel that something is legitimate, uh, but again, your church, where you're going to, your leadership that God has called to the ministry, they set rules and guidelines for the Sunday school teachers, for the deacons, etc., etc. I think it is right and proper that people fall in line with those rules and regulations, <laughs> unless... There's some clear violation of biblical principle. You're listening to That's Truth, and you're listening to Pastor Dr. David Murphy answer questions about Christian gray areas and the principles that we use should use for governing decisions that we make in these gray areas. Another question came in. How do you work with someone, especially within the church, when you personally have a more strict view on something like dress or music? Should you let the other person know what they're doing offends you? Uh, it depends on, on where you are there. Now, if you're the, the pastor, or you're the leader of, say, the, the choir, you're the leader of some other um, function within the church, I think it's right and proper that you set standards. And if there's a violation of those standards, I think it is necessary for you to confront that person and let that person know what the standards are. And if you don't appreciate certain matters, let them know that. It's no use you fretting on the, uh, silently and um, perhaps getting very angry, very upset. Uh, perhaps you're given hint after hint that something is inappropriate, but the person not responding. Uh, we need to confront people openly, do it decently and in order, 
uh, do it in a personal setting, not in a public setting, and explain to them your concerns and share with them your concerns. But in the end, if you are the one chosen by the church to lead in any capacity, your job is to lead. That person ought to respect that authority has been delegated to you. And if there's something that you have said that's not contrary to Scripture, it is only right and proper for that person to live in obedience. Um, that, to me, is the, the biblical thing. We make a lot of issues. I don't like this, and, and therefore we all, need to, we all need to conform to standards that are set by uh, legitimate authorities, whether we like it or not. You're listening to That's Truth. Pastor, does a clearly defined area for my parents' generation mean that it will be a clearly defined area for my generation? Or is it okay for some of these gray areas to become generational dependent? Well, cultures change. Uh, I think several years, I mean, look back maybe two or three decades ago, even further than that, um, the matter of um, television. I mean, people are watching different movies today that would never be watched 50 years ago uh, or 20 years ago in the, in the church, in the home. Um, Does that make it right? No, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. Uh, the fact is that we have become desensitized over uh, over a period of time. We, uh, When we first heard cussing on the television, we turned it off. When we first saw a, a scene that was suggestive or, or immoral, uh, we clicked it off. Uh, today, because we have been gradually desensitized and these things have been, been exposed and exposed and exposed to them, they are no longer uh, have the, 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 the compunction, the, the, the punch that used to be there. I think it's to our detriment that that has happened. Um, but I, I would, we've got to be very, very careful that the norms that we have for our homes and the standards are Bible-based, right? Um, so whatever we set for a home, we should find some biblical principle to help us establish that, 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 that norm. Uh, t t take the amount of time, for example. Uh, there are times when people had to be in at 9 o'clock. As a child matures and develops and, and uh, becomes a more senior person, you might give him 10 o'clock, might give him 11 o'clock. That's a judgment call that the person has to make. But there are things that, in my generation, uh, are no longer... Take them out of... Um, Mustache and, and beard. Now, you might think this is crazy, but when I was saved in the 60s, when people wore mustache and beard, they were worldly. Mm -hmm. Today, that has changed. Now, I think that has changed for good because clearly, uh, however you look at it, God intended for man to have a mustache and a beard, so we, we, can't, <laughs> we can't dispute that. But um, I understand what was happening back then. Take the, the matter of uh, the hippies uh, with the long hair. Uh, I mean, there's a biblical guideline on that one, that a woman, man should not wear long hair, etc., etc. But what is long, right? And what was uh, perceived to be long, um, people's view on that matter has changed as well. So I think that there are things that are generational. And I don't think that the fact that... Um, You've changed them. I don't think that that indicates that you've actually deviated from any biblical principle. I just think that the culture has changed. And uh, people today, for example, take going to church. People come to church more casual 
than formerly once before you used to have your tie etc mm. does that make it wrong because people are casual today i don't think so right um as long as they're not a a, a, a change in the norm that deviates from some biblical principle or some standard uh, i think it is quite okay that we have changing norms in society as long as they don't violate a biblical principle should I worry about how others perceive my choices, and if so, to what degree? Of course. Uh, Paul says, none of us live it to himself, none left to himself. And Paul says, we must be concerned about the weaker brother, that we don't defile the other because, uh, brother's conscience. So I ought to be concerned how people see me. Uh, uh, and, you know, let me just give a, a, a basic guideline. The person that sees me that is uh, always complaining about something about me, my main concern that will help me to decide whether or not I need to make any changes is this person uh, moving in the direction of godliness? Is he actually on the same? We on the same road, or is he is he just sitting on the fence and shooting at everybody that passed by? So I think there's a lot of difference. The person that is genuine, authentic, and you know he's real, he's deeply concerned about, you know, he's concerned about. I do think that you ought to take that person's opinion very very seriously, and uh, if you could make an adjustment to accommodate them, I think you should. But those who are just there on the fence, just criticizing for the sake of criticizing, they're not moving forward and going forward in the righteousness and holiness, but they always can tell you there's something wrong with you. Uh, I would say to you, to some extent, you should ignore those type of people. The other thing is, how many are offended by my behavior? Okay. You know, you're going to take that into consideration. Is this a general offense or is it just a, a minor person or, or two? I think that ought to be weighed as well in regarding what I need to change when somebody complains about something. Because, look, we all got people that... Uh, will always find something wrong with you, the way you live, where you talk, the way you behave, where you go, etc., etc. And why we must be conscious of, of them, we must be careful that we're not boxed in so that we lose completely our Christian liberty. Uh, that's what Paul is pointing out there, that he's free. All things are lawful, but some things don't edify, don't enslave, etc. Were there any biblical characters who faced Christian gray areas? And if so, how did they handle it? Well, the two things that come to mind. One is the incident where uh, Peter in the book of Galatians. Uh, we all know that um, the first century church was first Jewish. We all know that the Jews were very, very exclusive. But we all know that uh, Christianity changed all of that, and the gospel began to be preached to the Gentiles. One of the problems that the Jews had was the matter of socializing with uh, Gentiles. And remember that in Galatians, uh, Peter um, socialized with the Gentiles, and he didn't see a problem with it. But when the Jewish people came down from Jerusalem to Galatia, we are told that Peter dissembled, and Peter withdrew himself from the other Gentile believers. And uh, Paul said, I withstood him to the face. To the face. Uh, and Paul said that uh, Peter was acting non-Christianly, and, and Paul confronted Peter in terms of his socializings uh, with Gentiles. But for a Jew to eat with a Gentile was perceived to be wrong and sinful. Uh, but Christianity changed all of that. 
and that was an issue that needed, needed to be settled in the New Testament church. Paul dealt with it very forthrightly. Uh, he didn't beat around the bush. He came out, told Peter, what you're doing. You know, when the brethren weren't here, you socialized with the Gentiles. But now uh, the brethren have come down, you've withdrawn yourself. And Paul said, you're not really following the gospel of freedom and liberty. The other one is in the, the book of Corinthians and the, and the book of Romans, which has to do with two things. One has to do with eating meats offered to idols. Now, uh, almost in the pagan days, um, they're God for almost everything. So when people would kill animals, they were dedicated to the gods, etc., etc. But then there was the cheapest food was found in the marketplace that was offered to the gods. Now, here you are, a poor Christian, and uh, you you got a choice. You can either buy the lamb chops and the steaks, or you can buy this regular meat that was offered to idols, and it cost you less. Believers uh, felt that that was legitimate, because to them, idols really didn't mean anything. And so they were uh, engaging and purchasing meat offered to idols, and that was creating a problem in the church, because here's a Gentile who became converted, or even a Jew uh, who now finds it offensive that these things were offered to heathen idols. Now we are buying them and we're eating them. And Paul had to deal with that book, that in the uh, the book of um, Corinthians. The other thing was uh, the matter of going into the temple and socializing and, and eating at the table of, of pagans. Uh, that's when Paul says to them, come out and be separate from among them. So, and, and then Paul gave those guidelines uh, that I mentioned to you that should be used in deciding whether or not these things were appropriate. One, one thing that's interesting in, in Paul's writings is that Paul said, if you're invited to home and uh, meat is set before you, uh, don't ask questions. Was this offered to a pagan god or not? Paul says, just eat it. However, Paul says, if in the process of serving you, the person draws your attention, it was offered to a heathen god, Paul says, but don't eat. Not because for your, then it would offend they, they, your they conscience. They offend their conscience. So yeah. Paul says, just don't eat it. See, That is where you take... Look, love is about living sacrificially in the interests of other people. That's what love is all about. Uh, it's the same sacrificial love that we talk about in Philippians chapter 2 where Christ had rights, equality with God, but he set those rights aside in the interest of our welfare. And we must have the same mind that Christ has, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Pastor, a question that's come in. If Adam did not eat of the fruit, where do you think man would be today? I am not too sure I like to deal with speculation, okay? <laughs> but clearly... Um, it seems to me that man was going to develop morally and spiritually, and ultimately, um, if he did not partake of the fruit of good and evil that led him to stray, um, uh, he would have been living in a blissful paradise. It's almost like the new heaven and the new earth that the Bible talks about. I think that would have been the state of man. Uh, because remember that Revelation really is the undoing of everything that happens in the book of Genesis. So clearly we have an indication of uh, the Holy Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and you've got a, a renewed earth that is uh, perfect and pristine and idyllic, and, and man and God, there's no need of the sun anymore, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's the kind of world that man would have been living in had man, living in, had man not sinned and violated uh, the command of God. This next question deals with uh, plastic surgery and changing the, the shape of one's body in order to become, as the listener sends, 
a man-made doll. Pastor, is that appropriate? Is that a Christian gray area? Where's the balance to be had? And that's a very good question, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, you know, we paint our houses. <laughs> we paint our cars. Uh, I'm going to fade my mic down and let you... <laughs> we, we fill in the, 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 the gaps in our vehicle when you get a dent with, with putty, et cetera, et cetera. I think that um, we're really obsessed with beauty. Uh, let's face it, very obsessed with beauty. Uh, I, I, I think this is a matter of conscience. I think that uh, a person... Um, should exercise their conscience in this regard. Uh, there are some people that have glandular problems, for example, and they have become obese and fat, and I mean they get huge. Um, should we tell them that they should not go through some surgical procedure to try to, to get off that fat, get off that weight? I can't tell them that. I think that's a matter of conscience. Um, where I do have a problem is the excessive obsession with, 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 with uh, youthfulness, and um, I've seen old people acting like young people, dressing like young people. It's a farce. It's sometimes very humorous. I think that is going to the extreme. But when it comes to the use of uh, plastic surgery, I don't think you can find anywhere in Scripture where there's any specific reference to that matter. The person doing that had to look at uh, how is this going to affect um, my testimony? Is it going to in any way uh, infringe my capacity to witness to somebody? Uh, does it in any way rob God of uh, my life glorifying God? If a person can answer no to those questions, I think he's free uh, to exercise his Christian liberty in that regard. Uh, but let me say something else. What about a child who is deformed? What mm -hmm. about a person who gets into an accident? I mean, we, we would agree that some kind of surgery should be done to, 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 to deal with the, the, the scars and the ugliness that may be there. And there are some people who are quite discontent with uh, their facial features. Maybe when they were coming to the pelvic area or something, uh, something got deformed, etc., etc. Let's leave that to, to, the, uh, uh, to, to individuals making personal choices. I'll leave that to conscience. Are you enjoying Pastor Murphy's teaching style? If so, you can listen to another radio program that he has here on the Lighthouse. It's entitled Sermons of Grace. He's going through the book of Romans. And you can listen to that on Sunday evenings at 8.15 Atlantic Standard Time. 8.15 in the evening. 8.15 p.m. Sermons of Grace. Pastor Murphy... Is the tithe a Christian gray area? And the reason I ask that is there's not, as far as I'm aware, in the New Testament, there is not a command that says thou shalt give one-tenth of your earnings to the Lord. So therefore, there's not a clear command in the New Testament. So is it a clear, I mean, is it a gray area? For some people, it's not a gray area uh, because they point out that in the uh, the Old Testament, for example, that the the tithe came in long before the law was given. Uh, they told that um, uh, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. It seemed to be a principle that was built into the very structure of creation. The other thing that uh, in our Lord's teaching, um, he never condemned the Pharisees for giving tithes of the mint and the uh, uh, um, small items. Um, and he said, these things ought you to do, uh, but so you, you're neglecting the, 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 even the greater thing. So there's no indication uh, in our Lord's teaching that he felt that the time was, was contrary to the mind of God. 
The other thing that people argue is that if under law uh, the tithe was was uh, proper, um, clearly under grace uh, we should give more. Uh, people have said that. What I would say uh, to Christians again, this is a matter for the individual. This is a matter of conscience. Um, you must wrestle with God in this matter. And if your conscience doesn't bother you and you are convinced that there is no clear biblical moral imperative or, or biblical imperative, uh, that, again, you must exercise your conscience in this respect. I know on both sides. Uh, I've known of pastors who feel that this is the right thing to do. I know other pastors who feel that this is a matter of conscience between the believer and, and God. And I feel that way as well. I think it's a matter between the believer and God. Um, this is one of those things that there's no clear teaching on the matter in the New Testament. Um, um, we, we can't take the Old Testament code and carry it over into the New Testament. However, I would like to say this. Nothing can be done today without money. And that is a that's a fact. Whether you pay the electric bill, you pay the water, whether you maintain the buildings, whether you um, pay your pastor, pay your pastor, whether you 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 um, buy your Sunday school material, whether you advance and and uh, add, add structures or you're involved in other kinds of forms of ministry, money is is clearly uh, an essential part of the ministry, and God's people must learn to give. It's interesting that. In the Old Testament, in addition to the tithes, there were offerings that were given voluntarily by God. So there was a standard base. But then, if the Lord would lead other believers and prosper them, they gave even beyond the tithe. It is um, difficult to imagine that if they did that well under law, why we who are the beneficiaries of God's grace would consider doing less. But then again, as I said before, because there's no clear... Uh, teaching, Paul just says uh, that which you've set aside um, on the first day of the week. He didn't specify how much it was going to be. So I think this is one area that the, it's a matter between a Christian and his conscience and his God. Are there any more principles or guidelines that you'd like to mention? You were mentioning all things lawful and expedient. Mm -hmm. Does it control me? Don't be a stumbling block. Uh, are there others? There's another one I think is vitally important, and this is one where Paul mentions in Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, whether you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do it for the glory of God. Now, some people are confused as to what it means by do things for the glory of God, but if you check the concept of the glory of God in the Old Testament, every time glory of God um, is mentioned, God is displaying himself. God is appearing. And when it talks about doing things for the glory of God, it means that whatever we do, we do it with the intention of putting God on display. I think that is a gist and essence of, uh, of glorifying God. That if I work, um, I want to work in such a way that people can see that it's just not the normal way a person operates, that there's some dimension to my life that makes people factor God into that. That when, I, um, when I'm studying, I'm not just passing to suddenly to get a C. I want to do so well and excel in such a way that people can see that I, I'm, I'm serious, I want to pursue excellence. In other words, everything I do uh, the idea there is that 
we want attention to be drawn to God as not just me, the individual and human being, that there's something supernatural beyond the natural and to call people's attention to that. So I, I think that's a, a vital, vital principle. Uh, whatever I do, whether I eat or drink, the most minute of things that I do, um, am I putting God on display? Can people in any way see the God factor in whatever I say or whatever I do? Um, the other one that I think that needs to be borne in mind is the fact that the, the Bible clearly tells us that we and whatever we do is coming up for evaluation. We must always take into consideration the judgment seat of Christ, that our motives are going to be judged, the quality of our work is going to be judged, and I think that how we live is going to be judged. So I must factor that in into even the gray areas of my life, uh, this idea of the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm going to be evaluated by Him. I think that's another vitally important principle for the believer. For the believer. That, when you mention that, it just brought a a verse to mind, and I don't see it right off. It's not where I thought it was, but I believe it's in Corinthians, where it says that all of us will have to stand before the judgment, judgment seat, seat of Christ and give an account, give an account for okay. what's been good, done good, and what's been done bad. And then also for, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, how we've been a witness uh, or uh, how we've shared the gospel with those that are around us. Yeah. Uh, I'll try and find it later and share it. Yeah, and, and Paul talks about um, the judgment seat of Christ as well, that he compares our works and our efforts to wood, hay, and stubble, uh, to gold, silver, and precious stones. And the whole idea is that you can imagine that here's your home. You've got gold, silver, and precious stones. You've got wood, hay, and stubble. You've got some stamps or whatever it is, and a fire comes through. And uh, And what would be left after that is just what are precious, the, uh, the gold, silver, etc. But if you have the valuable stamps, you're all destroyed. And the concept there is that the quality of our work uh, will start come under the scrutiny of God's judgment. And only that which is truly uh, meaningful and precious and done for His glory and for His praise and for the right motivation, only that will receive the reward. And we ought to take that into uh, seriously into consideration when we uh, decide on things that we uh, have our liberty and uh, curtail our liberty in the interests of others, how it affects others. Is it ever appropriate to condemn others who have made decisions that are more conservative than yours in Christian gray areas? We've talked about the other, the pendulum be, or the spectrum being flipped, but what about if someone who is more conservative, how do you, uh, for example, uh, maybe you have a friend who, a fellow believer who doesn't have a television, uh, how do you relate to them? How do you interact with them in that area? Well, one of the things that Paul keeps telling believers in these sections, especially Corinthians and Romans, is uh, let us not judge one another. And he says that uh, the servant standeth in relation to um, his master. Let him be the judge. So we've got to try to avoid this judgmental attitude uh, in, in dealing with people. Uh, uh, I probably should have mentioned at, at the beginning that there are some general uh, principles that Paul talks about um, in terms of dealing uh, with believers um, in these in these particular areas. 
And in a moment, I'd just like to get my thoughts there to, to, to deal with yeah. that. So just give me a moment. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I'm going to go back to that verse that I was referencing just to share it. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also made manifest in your conscience. But the part of that verse that's been convicting to me, I must say just about every time that I read it, is the first half that says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And just that concept that everything I need to be doing should be going toward that goal of giving glory to God and by doing that, uh, witnessing to others. You're listening to That's Truth, and the voice you heard answering the questions is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church. Do you have a church in Antigua? For those of you that are listening in Antigua, are you looking for a good Bible-preaching church? If you already have one that you attend, we're not trying to encourage you to leave the church. But if you're looking for one, we'd encourage you to visit Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Grace is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles. Sunday school is at 9 a.m. on Sunday. This morning service is at 10 a.m., and the evening service is at 7 p.m. The Thursday evening prayer and Bible study begins at 7 p.m. Again, we're not trying to draw you away from your church if you are attending a Bible teaching, Bible preaching church, but if you are looking for one and you enjoy Pastor Murphy's honesty and the way that he is explaining and teaching the Word of God, let me encourage to, you to come out and to visit Grace Baptist Church. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, draw your attention to uh, Romans chapter 14, where Paul gives some preliminary guidelines as to how we deal with people uh, with who we differ, uh, especially in gray areas. Just four principles that Paul talks about. Uh, in verses 1, he said, Him that is weak in the faith receive you but not the doubtful disputation. And Paul is saying we should welcome all believers, but we must not focus on the those areas that are contentious and debatable. So we, we, we try to um, embrace believers, but we don't embrace them for the purpose of, of um, either insulting them or to make them feel uneasy or just to have some kind of contention. So the idea is that you're welcome, but the purpose is not to debate questions of this nature. The second thing that Paul says in verse 2, he says, For one believeth that he may eat all things, another that he, uh, who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise of him that eateth not. The second thing that Paul is saying here, we must, uh, in dealing with believers who we think are weak because we are so superior to that person, uh, we don't have the, uh, the quibbles that they have about whether this thing is right or wrong. The temptation of the person who is far more mature uh, is to despise that person, disparage that person, or in some way look down on that person because they're not, they haven't re reached the level that you've reached. So you've got to be very careful that you don't um, look down or disparage. Uh, and the, the little word in the Greek, by the way, is look down your nose on, as though you treat them with contempt because uh, yeah, why this petty thing bothers them and here I am, a superior Christian to him. We, we don't adopt that, that kind of attitude. And then the third thing that Paul says is found in verse 4 and 5. He says, Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, 
for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, one esteemeth uh, alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his mind. What Paul is saying is, let us recognize that we have a right to differ with each other. Right? We can't create clones of ourselves. We'll always have people that have a different divergent view on a particular matter. If there is no clear uh, definitive biblical guideline or principle in the matter, we should respect the fact that we can still be friends, we can still be Christians, but we can differ on this particular issue. So it's biblical to agree to disagree if there's not a clear principle about uh, of course, in the Bible. Of course, of course. And, and I think a lot of contentions may be resolved if we ac- accept that biblical principle. And then the fourth thing that Paul says is, don't prejudge the motive of your believer. And that is found in verse 4, uh, verse 10. Uh, but who art thou that judgest thy brother, or why dost thou set at not thy brother? For ye shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And then verse 13. Let us therefore not judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block on occasion to fall in, in blood. So the idea there is don't, let us not prejudge why this person has taken this position. Let's believe that he's authentic and real and he has a real concern. And if he has a real concern, uh, we should, in the exercise of our liberty, try to see if we can curtail our liberty to um, embrace the younger brother. Because our concern must not be ourselves. The Bible is very, very, very clear that love is the self-sacrifice of self in the interest and welfare of another person. So we must... The, the weaker brother, by the way, is the one that always have a lot of quibbles. The stronger guy is the guy who understands his liberty in Christ. So the stronger ought always to bear the burden of the, the weaker brother. And that should be our, our, our modus operandus in, in dealing with people who have a lot of issues and, and quibbles. Is it ever appropriate? Is there ever a time and a place where it's okay in God's eyes to kill someone? I'm in my house and I'm defending my family. Uh, I'm part of a military. I've joined the military. Uh, is it okay for a Christian to join the military and to kill someone, even though there's a very clear principle that says, thou shalt not murder? Well, murder and killing is two different things. Okay. Uh, and let's be very, very clear about that. For example, the, the government has got authority to take the life of an individual. The Bible says he does not bear the sword in vain. This is why capital punishment is a biblical principle. If a man deliberately, premeditatedly take the life of another person, the government uh, has a right to maintain law and order and to exercise judgment. And if that judgment involves capital punishment, that's legitimate. Uh, I mean, you cannot run away from that in in Scripture. That is authority given to government. Uh, And the reason, by the way, why the person who has committed a capital offense deliberately and premeditatively must be, life must be taken and forfeited is because he has destroyed the image of God. And God has said that uh, who destroys God's image, uh, that person should also suffer the same similar penalty. Pastor, we have a caller from Nevis. Go ahead. Good evening. Good evening. I would like to get your input on two verses of Scripture from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. Do you want to read that, or do you want me to turn there? I, I would read it. Okay, go ahead. It says, You shall not make any cutting in your flesh for the dead, 
nor print any mark upon you. I am the Lord. Uh -huh. Do not prostitute thy daughter to cause her to be a whore, uh -huh. lest the land fall into whoredom and the land become full of wickedness. So you're asking a question about uh, tattoos? What do you stand on it? My view on tattoos, I don't think tattoos are appropriate for Christian. Um, this passage in Leviticus, I, I, I need to do a little bit more um, study on it. I don't want to make a uh, statement about it and then I, uh, I find out the context, etc., etc. So I would, I would prefer to go to it and maybe respond in a more appropriate way next time uh, to this passage. But if you take this passage on face value, clearly cuttings and markings are not appropriate for the human body. Um, we are going to get a tattoo eventually, by the way. I hope you know that. It's found in the book of Revelations where we bear the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in our heads and our foreheads. So that's, that's going to come. So those who want a tattoo can wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't think a tattoo is appropriate. I think it's, it's taking the, the body of, uh, that God has given to us and, and deforming it. Um, it looks, um, I mean, it's gone to, it's become a craze today. Uh, and I, I don't think it's appropriate for Christian, but there are people who would have um, no qualms about it, and um, they would say to you that this is an Old Testament uh, passage, and we're now living in New Testament times. But I do think the principle of the Old Testament still apply today, because Paul, in some of his writings, remind the uh, that when our Lord said, "You should not muzzle the ox." He took that principles and said that you should not, you should uh, actually take care of your pastor. So he's taking an Old Testament principle and uh, drawing a New Testament application. And I do feel a passage like this um, clearly would have New Testament application in terms of the using of tattoos. I don't know why people would want tattoos, to be very honest with you. And there are so much people who are doing it, a lot of Christians even. Yeah, but even pastors, I'm told, in the States, are now want to be looked at as macho men, and they put all of these. By the way, I'm told that if you have uh, certain tattoos, depending upon your body, you cannot even give blood. So it is uh, really um, limiting your capacity to help somebody who might need emergency blood, whether for surgery or whatever. But I agree with you as a, as a I'm just telling you, I agree with you that I think that it is inappropriate for the believer, and I don't think believers should engage in it. I, I really understand, can't understand the madness of what is going on today, and every believer seems to be embracing everything the world is doing. There is such a thing called worldliness, and that's conforming to the lifestyle and conforming to the norms and the standards of, of the world. We're supposed to be different, and I don't see how we will ever be salt and light if every new fad that comes online, uh, we just join in the bandwagon, and we lose our identity as Christians. So I'm quite, I'm, a, I'm, I'm on board with you in that regard. Thank you very much for that question. I trust that that answered your question. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate you calling in with your question. Pastor, to take that to the next step, though, many ladies in our churches have pierced ears, and that could be considered a cutting or a mutilation of the body. I'm using the word mutilation very loosely there. So how would you defend that uh, from a biblical perspective, or what are your thoughts? One thing that comes to mind, if you go back to uh, the Old Testament again, I'm just using Old Testament reference, um, uh, the earrings, uh, the lady wore earrings, those earrings were used to be part of the gold that actually went into the building of the temple. 
Uh, I'm just saying that's that's a reality that people when they gave the gifts, the women gave the earrings and they gave the jewels, etc., etc. Um, I do not have a problem with earrings, um, uh, piercing for the earring. I'm not too sure if that's a, such a major issue. It's just one small part of the body. Uh, I know of churches that is split over jewelry uh, because of what Paul teaches. Not the the outward adorning of yourself, not with um, 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 gold and silver, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but I think what Paul is talking about in that passage is extravagance, and I think there's a nothing wrong in a woman wearing a. I mean, where do we draw it? Should can a person wear a watch? Somebody wear a bangle? Um, so I do feel that there are. We want to avoid extremes. Uh, but where you draw the line sometimes is not very, very, very clear. Sometimes earrings are a cultural thing as well. Um, if you go to different tribes in Africa, for example, in addition to earrings, you, there's one that has a, a lip ring that goes around the lip. I mean, that's a cultural thing. If I had gone there to preach and I had, uh, was there for a long time, I would try to change that because it's actually deforming the body. But I think uh, this is one of those areas where, when it comes to earrings are concerned, I think it's a matter of conscience, but I personally don't have a problem with a woman wearing an appropriate... However, when I see that ear that got 10 and 12 earrings and the ear almost can hardly sustain that, I think that is extravagant. So when I see a person has uh, 10 rings on the finger, I think that's extravagant. <laughs> I think, you know, we got to be very, very careful. We want to be modest in whatever we do and avoid extremes. Another question that has come in via WhatsApp from Antigua. Can the Christian conscience be hardened? And if so, how can you fix it? I don't think there's any doubt about that uh, the Christian conscience can be hardened. Um, that happens over a period of time when God is speaking through his word, through the community of faith, other believers, um, maybe even reading reading books, um, watching videos. There are a variety of ways that God speaks to the believer, and if the believer is unresponsive, it comes to a point where the conscience becomes hardened. So I, I think that's a reality, that the conscience can become hardened. The only thing that can break up the foreground of the, of the human conscience, again, is the word repentance, uh, exposure to the scriptures, uh, intercessory prayer, and this this kind may also require uh, prayer and fasting, but the conscience can be so, can be softened as one uh, responds to the word and is obedient to the word. Then that gives the Holy Spirit of God, who is the agent of change, and the instrument of of His agent of change is the word. That then allows Him to begin to work on the conscience and work on the heart of the person. So as you respond to the word. Uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, He does His work in, in transforming the conscience and transforming the mind. There is no other way outside of the uh, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and obedience that the conscience can be once again become supple and responsive uh, to God. Uh, that would be my, my thought on that matter. I know in a previous uh, episode we were discussing marijuana and you had stated that you were against uh, the smoking of recreational marijuana or the smoking of marijuana, but you were okay with medicinal uses for marijuana. I read recently that there are there's a growing trend of putting marijuana in food to be consumed uh, for recreational purposes. How do you find the balance there? I understand smoking is harmful for the body, but eating a brownie isn't going to be harmful for the body. 
I am not too sure. Uh, I, I had to uh, do my own research on that one. Um, I, I do feel, I do, from what I've read, and again, I'm speaking very broadly now, uh, it does still have effects on the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to an area like this, this is where the medical profession ought to give some guidelines on these matters. And this is my problem with the medical professions in the Caribbean. They are sitting on the fence. They seem to be somewhat scared or irresponsible in not dealing with these kind of issues. I think we need clarity on them, and I wish we had a Christian doctor who would be honest and forthright with the people of Antigua and the Caribbean and speak on these issues because as a pastor, I don't have the medical knowledge, I don't have the background to be able to speak uh, definitively on this matter. But I do feel that a medical profession, especially a Christian, who really... Uh, not only is a person who has the medical knowledge, but who also has a, a heart for Christian people and a heart for truth. I do feel that this is where I, I don't want to say I condemn the medical profession, but I am disheartened by the fact that no one so far has come out and really uh, tried to help the Christian church and help believers and even help the, the general audience in getting a more honest, balanced understanding of this whole matter of marijuana, whether it be smoking or using it uh, for food or any other means. We do need some guidance in this matter, and I wish that someone would be bold and courageous enough to come out and begin to speak about it. What about the gray area of physical contact when dating? Uh, Holding hands, uh, kissing before marriage. What advice do you have for the listener who is is not married but is dating, or maybe their children are dating and they're trying to give godly counsel? I, I don't know if people are aware that um, there are some steps that eventually lead to immorality, basically. You've got to be very careful where you draw the lane because this is where it's headed. Any two people that are dating are not moving away from each other. They're moving towards each other. And basically, it, it starts, um, immorality starts in incremental stages. Uh, generally speaking, it, it starts by touch, holding the hands, etc., etc. Now, any um, lively person, uh, any young person would know that the electricity of holding your girlfriend's hand at the first time is, is, is something out of this world. Your hand begins to sweat, you got these weird feelings uh, that you didn't have before. Your your hormones begin to act up, so it starts with touch, and you've got to realize that for a woman in particular, the key uh, to unlocking her heart is touch. For a man, it's looks, it's appearance, and that's why uh, a woman got to be careful about too much touching um, 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 by the man, and uh, the man got to be careful. About her too much her revealing too much of herself because that's where the problem so it normally starts with touching and then generally it, it starts with an innocent hug a second follow a little hug maybe a parting you give a little hug then from a little hug you go to a little kiss maybe on the cheek maybe on the forehead but then ultimately it leads to the French kiss and once you've gotten that far you're pretty much on the road to immorality it's hard to stop when you get that far how do you stop well, again, if you know that's where you're headed, you stop before you get there. 
Okay. That's the point I'm making. These yeah. are incremental steps. If you know that chances are once you get involved in French kissing, it's not going to stop there. Then it starts with petting. That's when you go under the woman's skirt, you play mm -hmm. with her, her private parts, etc. That's not sex as yet, but yeah. you, at least, in that, and then finally, at least in morality. So you got to you got to realize that if you didn't touch, and you didn't hug, and you didn't kiss, and you didn't French kiss, you probably wouldn't pet, and you wouldn't get involved. So you got to decide where along that line you need to stop. Now, I can't tell you where, that, where you want to stop there, but the point I'm making here is that one leads to the other, and you have to make up in your mind while you're dating where you draw the line in this regard. And there are some people who are fairly strong, others who are very weak. You've got to know yourself. But once you begin to arouse the flesh, it is very, very difficult to hold it in check. So you have to use your judgment in this matter. What about for the individual who is in the middle of that slippery slope and is wanting to put the brakes and realize, if I don't put the brakes on now, I'm going to end up somewhere that I shouldn't be? What advice do you have? My advice is very simple. You just say to your person, the partner, look, this is headed in the wrong direction. Um, I'm a Christian. I want to maintain my testimony. This could lead me down a trail that I don't want to go. I don't want to be end up with pregnancy. Uh, we need to stop here. Is pregnancy the problem or the immorality? The immorality is the problem. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for That's Truth this evening. We really appreciate your interaction, and we look forward to having you, us, having you join us in future weeks. We've got another great topic lined up for you next week, and we'll be making some announcements on air to let you know what that topic is in preparation for next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.